the highest evangelistic motivation given in the New Testament is neither obedience to the Great Commission nor compassion for lost people as high and as mighty as those motivations are given. The strongest single motivation given in the Word of God that created a burning, compassionate zeal in the life of the Apostle Paul was his namesake, the glory of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a new study in the book of Romans, a monumental letter written by the Apostle Paul and said to be one of the most challenging books in the Bible. Challenging it is, but it also presents a number of fundamental truths that can be easily understood by both new Christians as well as those who are mature in the faith. We spent last week looking at the author of Romans and found Paul to be a man who was committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and who had a burning desire to share his faith with those who didn't yet know Christ. Having looked at God's commissioning on Paul's life last time, we pick up today in chapter 1 looking at our commissioning to share the faith with others. You come to Christ helpless, bankrupt, recognizing you cannot save yourself. But this letter, remember, is written to Christians so that we can grow and deepen in the grace of God. And Paul knew that God loved him and through him that God had called him by his grace. And when you are gripped with that truth, and I hope you will by the time we're finished with this epistle, your life will never, ever be the same. Now, I want you to notice here from verse 5 that the call that God put on Paul's life and all of our lives is governed by three principles. First, I want you to think about the range of God's commission. Think about the range of this call, the range of God's commission. Again, we read here in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Now that word Gentiles is the Greek word ethnesim. Our English word ethnicity comes from it. It speaks of the nations of the world. And some translations render it that way, not as Gentiles, but as nations. And that's okay. The gospel that God planned for Paul to preach was for all the nations. Now remember, previously, he was a bigoted Pharisee. He was a narrow-minded Jewish man and the Jews in that day, because especially the Pharisees, as Josephus tell us, they wouldn't even want a Gentile to brush up against their clothing. Every morning, a, a Pharisee would thank God that he had not been made a Gentile, but that he was a descendant of Abraham. And they shuddered at the thought, that God could love a Gentile. And so the contemporaries of Paul thought the Gentiles were, quote, as one historian says in that day, fuel for the fires of hell. But Paul came to understand something about grace, that the ground is level at the cross, that none of us are better than someone else. And when you grow deep in grace, you begin to grow in your desire to see all the nations one for Christ. Now, when you look at a person, how do you think of them? Do you think, well, I would really like to share the gospel with that individual because he's wealthy like I am? Or I'd like to share the gospel with him because he's educated like I am? Or I'd like to share the gospel with him because he's the same ethnicity as I am? Nothing necessarily wrong with that. 
unless you habitually and continually think that way to the exclusion of reaching people unlike yourself. Now, God may have put you in a unique sphere that you may have an advantage over others to reach certain people for Christ. But God wants you to see that all people are equally in need. That God is not a respecter of persons and neither we should we. And when you begin to grow in grace, God begins to dissolve educational, uh, socioeconomic, uh, national prejudices. There are no such divisions in the body of Christ. And certainly there will be no such distinctions when we get to heaven. And when you begin to think in those terms, it changes everyone. You're, it changes your perspective. You think, not only do I want to reach the president of some corporation, I want to reach the, the, the sales clerk that's waiting on me today. You know why some churches are so homogeneous and they're all like each other? Because they haven't grown very much in the grace of God. And so when they think of inviting someone to church, they just think of inviting someone like themselves. When they think of sharing the gospel, think of people just like themselves. But the grace of God expands your vision to all nations, the whole world. Now when you think about the whole world... It's kind of mind-boggling, it's in some respect, that God has called you, he's called me, to reach the whole world for Christ. I like it to break it down, though, in my thinking. First of all, I, when I think of the remotest part of the earth, I, I think of the countries of the world. And when you think of the countries of the world, you can either pray and help financially someone else to go, or you can pray and go yourself. Uh, if you want to learn how to pray well for the countries of the world, there's a book, it's online as well, called Operation World. And it goes through every nation of the world. It tells you about their socioeconomic status, all the different people groups, and what the church is like in that particular country. How large it is, what's, how many true Christians there are sometimes, and, and you can pray very, very specifically. But beyond the nations, the countries of the world, there's also those casual encounters that God gives you. God may have you sitting next to someone on an airplane or wait, someone waiting on you in a restaurant or someone sitting next to you in a doctor's office because you are his ambassador to reach that person with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are no accidents for the child of God. And when you begin to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you will see every week in these casual encounters divine appointments that God has for you. Paul prayed that God may give us an open door for the gospel. Do you ever pray that? God, here's a brand new week. I ask that you would give me an open door to share Christ this week with people. And so when you think of all the nations, you can think about praying and helping others to go, or you can pray and go yourself. And beyond all the countries of the world, there are the casual encounters, but beyond the casual encounters, there's those close encounters. Those people that you rub shoulders with habitually, your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, and God calls you to reach them as well. So that's the range of God's commission. Now, beyond the range of God's commission, I also want you to think about the result from God's commission. What is the result from God's commission? Look again in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. The result of proclaiming the gospel according to this verse is it brings the obedience of faith. 
When we come to the last chapter, Paul will repeat this in chapter 16. He says there, the scriptures have been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. So here the apostle in the first chapter and again in the last chapter is reminding us of a true and living, vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. Now there have been three explanations that have been given for this phrase, the obedience of faith. The first says that it means obedience to the faith, understanding here the faith to refer to the body of truth we call the Bible. It is true that when the word the, the article is placed with the word faith, it refers to that body of truth of Scripture. And so some take this as obedience to the faith. But Paul is not speaking of the faith. He's referring to the obedience that comes from faith. And there's a di difference. A second explanation, by the way, that's a minority view, but I mention it. Uh, a second explanation is that that is held by Roman Catholic theologians. And they would say that what Paul is teaching in this verse is that a man is saved by faith and obedience, faith and works to secure heaven. Certainly not. Romans 3 and 4 will totally destroy and shatter that notion. Paul will underscore for us that the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is sufficient to save an individual alone. That God either saves you all by himself without any effort from you or he doesn't save you at all. Listen, that explanation that this is faith plus obedience ignores even someone who is half bright that they could be consistent. Do you think of chapter 1 he contradicts himself with chapters 3 and 4? Of course not. Not to mention ignores the inspiration and the infallibility that the Spirit gave as he gave us the Word of God. The third explanation is that the Apostle Paul is describing a faith that works. He's not talking about faith and works. He's talking about a faith that does work. A true, vibrant faith. Clearly, the gospel is embraced by faith alone. Yet a true faith in Jesus Christ brings about a change of life. If you've really trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sin, then there are certain things that you were willing to call evil and wrong that you know you needed forgiveness from and change in. And so there's an element of submission that, of course, has worked out over a lifetime in the believer's life. And so the apostles' response in our day to those who say that you can receive Jesus Christ as Savior and spurn him as Lord, he would say you cannot because a true faith brings the obedience that, that flows out of faith, that there's a change of life, that you cannot separate the payment from Jesus made from who he is, the Lord himself. And so twice over, first in verse 4, he's called Jesus Christ our Lord. And then again in verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we're saved by faith alone. The faith that saves is never alone. Works is not the means, but it is definitely the evidential fruit. The NIV 84, which tends to paraphrase a lot, captures it well. Let me read it to you. Through him, for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes 
from faith. It's a paraphrase, but it's what's intended. All right, now in addition to the range of God's commission, that is to all the nations, and the result of God's commission, it changes life. It brings about the obedience of faith. Notice also the reason, the reason for God's commission, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Now, in a few translations, for his name's sake comes in the beginning of the verse. In other translations, it comes in the middle of the verse. But in the Greek New Testament, as reflected in the New American Standard in the King James, it comes right at the end of the verse. Paul is giving us a crescendo, the high point of what he is trying to make. What was it that gave the Apostle Paul a burning desire to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? He tells us why he did it, for his name's sake. Now, every time you come across that phrase in the New Testament, just write over it in your mind, for the glory, for the reputation of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Philippians 2, for God has highly exalted him to the highest place and has given him the name which is above every name in order that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. If God desires every knee to bow, if God desires that every tongue will confess, then you ought to be jealous for the honor of Christ's name. You ought to be troubled when it is unknown. You ought to be indignant when it is blasphemed and you ought to be determined to give it its honor through the promise proclamation of the gospel. The highest evangelistic motivation given in the New Testament is neither obedience to the Great Commission nor compassion for lost people as high and as mighty as those motivations are given. The strongest single motivation given in the Word of God that created a burning, compassionate zeal in the life of the Apostle Paul was his namesake, the glory of Jesus Christ. And you know why some of us see so few people come to Jesus Christ? Because our motivation is all wrong. We're not interested in his namesake. I spoke a few years ago at a missions conference in Wisconsin. I said, listen, God's not interested in lifting up your name or your church, or your denomination, or your mission agency. He is interested in lifting up the name of Christ. He is interested in solely glorifying his son's name. And so when you commit yourself to the range of this commission, to all the nations, when you understand that the gospel brings about the obedience of faith, the result of this commission, and when there's a burning desire because you understand how unworthy you are and how God alone should receive glory, that it is for his namesake. Look out, your life and your ministry will begin to change. Now that's Paul's commission to the Roman Christians. Beginning now in verse 6, he gives us a description of the Roman Christians. Let's get a running start from verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for his namesake. Among whom... You also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verses 6 and 7, he uses three words to describe the Roman Christians and again to describe us of all true believers in Jesus Christ. I have them underlined. Let me encourage you to underline them there in your Bible. In verse 6, he speaks of the called. 
In verse 7, he speaks of the beloved or the beloved. It's actually an adjective, though it looks like a verb. And also he speaks of saints here in verse 7. In the New Testament, our service for God always flows from our position from God. When we understand who God has made us to be, then we will understand why it is that he has called us to do. Our, our, our practice always flows from our position. And so Paul, throughout this book, this is just kernel form. He's going to take these truths and he's going to blow them up big and fat in your mind that they will reverberate in your soul and change your life. So notice how he describes them. First, they are described as the called, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible teaches that salvation did not begin with you, it began with God Almighty. In Ephesians 2 and verse 1, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so I can understand in either the physical realm or the spiritual realm that dead people have absolutely no capacity in themselves to respond. And so Paul will say to the Corinthians, by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus. Salvation didn't begin with you, it began with God. And when you understand that, it's really a very comforting truth. Because if salvation began with you, then you might lose it. But because it began with God, it is secure. And so to the church at Philippi, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, the word call is used in two different ways in the New Testament. One very general and another very specific. And if you mix these up, your theology will be mixed up. First of all, there's the general external call that is given whenever the gospel is preached. When the gospel is preached, when God knocks on the door of your heart, so to speak, he's calling you. Don't ever think that you first called God. You were dead. God first opened your heart to the gospel message. It's true right from the start of time in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they sin and they run from God and they hide from God. And God comes into the garden and he says, where are you, Adam? The omniscient God asks a question. That's not the voice of a detective. That's the voice of a broken-hearted God who loves man, who wants to redeem man and bring him back into himself. It was God to the rescue right from the start. And so John will write in his first letter, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Then he says, we love him because he first loved us. Do you think it was your idea to seek the Lord? It was not. It was God's idea. He sought you first. The only reason you had the idea is because God gave you the idea. Don't think for one moment that the initiative came from your depraved, fallen, sinful heart because it did not. And so please don't think either that just a select few have an opportunity to hear this call because this is a general call that we will see in Romans goes out in many different ways. And you see this in both Testaments. Isaiah the prophet said, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Ezekiel said, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from his way and live. In the New Testament, Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
He gave a similar invitation in John 7. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And even when you come to the very end of the Bible in Revelation 22, it says, Come and let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. So don't think that everyone doesn't have, a, have an opportunity for this call. Because we will see that God's call goes to the ends of the earth. Now before we're done with this chapter, we're going to deal with the age-old question the skeptics ask, and certainly that Christians should ask, about those who have never heard the name of Jesus and how it is that God justly can consider them lost. Hold on to your seat. We're going to come to that in a few weeks. But what I want you to see here, and I want to underscore it in your thinking, is the free will of man. Because the Bible teaches that a person can resist the general call of God. Jesus said in John 5 to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. He didn't say unable. He said unwilling. A few years later, Stephen will preach in Acts 7 to his Jewish brethren, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. It is not entirely accurate to say that it is impossible to resist the grace of the Holy Spirit working in your heart because many did. And so the general call of God, where God invites you, can indeed be resisted. But when you respond to the general call of God, there's an effectual internal call that makes you a member of the call that will secure you for all of eternity. Hold your finger here, turn a few pages to the right to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, it's a great chapter. We're going to spend a lot of time on it. But let me just give you a brief preview. In Romans 8, 28, it's, it's a verse probably many of you have memorized. And if you don't, you ought to memorize it because it will help you in your walk with Christ. But notice what he says in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In this passage, Paul is speaking of those individuals who have responded to the general call of God, to those who are saved, to those who love God. The Greek text that is most precisely reflected in the King James says to those who are the called. The definite article is present. He's talking about the called, a select group of people. And so in verses 29 and 30, Paul will now explain how it is that God works everything together for our good. You could apply this in many realms, but don't miss it in its original context. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son 
so that he, the Lord Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul is describing God's golden chain of salvation. And there are five links in this chain that cannot be broken. He speaks of foreknowledge, that God knows the beginning and the end. And when we come to this chapter, we'll detail this word throughout the New Testament, and we'll talk about its abuse by some in our day. But when God knows someone, the Bible says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now understand, people often blur the two together in their thinking, but the doctrine of election is distinctly different from the doctrine of predestination in the New Testament. The doctrine of predestination speaks of the goal and the outcome of your salvation. God has predestined those who have freely chosen, who have responded to the general call to be what? To become conformed to the image of his Son. God obligates himself to make you like his son. And so when God foreknows and predestines someone, there is an effectual call. There is a hook that's put in the heart of man that is going to be completed. This doesn't contradict the free will of man. It coincides with free will. And so he says, and these whom he predestined, verse 30, he also called. Because of their response to the general call, to God's general initiative, there's an internal call that brings about salvation. And these whom he called, he also justified. We'll study the doctrine of justification in chapters 3 and 4. But suffice it to say now that when God calls you, he justifies you. He saves you. He declares you judicially holy in his sight. And then he concludes in verse 30, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Would you circle the last two letters of the word glorified? Please note, he does not say he will glorify, but he has glorified. The doctrine of glorification refers to that time in the future when God will complete your salvation and give you a glorified body without a sin nature, just like the Lord Jesus. Experientially, I am waiting for that to happen, but positionally in the mind of God, it is as good as done. And so there's no leakage in these five links between God's calling and God's glorification. If you are a member of the called, then you cannot lose your salvation. It began with God, and what God began, he will complete. You say, Pastor, I don't fully understand that. Well, I'm glad you don't, because I don't either. And if you try to figure it out, you'll probably find yourself under your bed reciting the Greek alphabet. Listen. I meet Christians who think they have it all figured out. I do not. I, I don't have a, a, a magnificent God all figured out. But I understand some things that that which God has settled in eternity cannot be undone in time. That what God has declared in heaven cannot be undone by hell. You say, well, that's wonderful, Pastor. As long as you are a member of the called, but maybe I'm not one of the called ones. I have good news for you. Do you want to come? Then you may come. You, you may. The Bible tells us that God wants none to perish, but wants all to repent, to turn from their old lives and to begin a new life of faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never made this decision, harden not your heart. Today is the day of salvation. 
Let us send you a pamphlet and DVD explaining how you can be a friend of God. Just call 877-787-7478 and ask for, Would you like God as your friend? It's absolutely free for the asking. And if you'd like to hear today's message or any of the messages Dr. Brogy has preached, use the Search the Scriptures app or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. We want to remind you that the Search the Scriptures trip to Israel originally scheduled for this October has been rescheduled to next May 11th through the 21st. This will be a wonderful time of learning and appreciating afresh the truths of God's Word in His chosen land. For more information, visit searchthescriptures.org. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our message of vibrant faith as we search the Scriptures.